0: Welcome to episode 168. Today, we learn some of the most practical strategies for developing writing across the curriculum. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Many of us are familiar with Scarborough's Reading Rope, which are the core skills required for reading. Wouldn't it be nice if the field had a writing version of that? Through jones Sadita's work, we now have a writing rope. In this podcast, she'll share how we can develop the key skills required for writing. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Joan Cedida on the podcast. Today, she's going to be talking about The Writing Rope, a framework for explicit writing instruction for all subjects. I watched your webinar on ebbweb, and I was so mesmerized uh, by the clarity and the practicality of your ideas. And you have taken uh, scholars research and put it into practice. So Joan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to, once again, talk about a, a subject that is really near
0: and dear to me, and that, that's writing instruction. And that writing instruction is really important and near and dear to the teachers who listen to this podcast because we're always trying to figure out how do we help students uh, write in another language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you know, learning to read in any language is difficult enough
0: learning to write is, is that, much, that much harder. Well, we're excited to learn uh, from you to, to figure out what ways we can make it uh, easier and more accessible for students. Can you please start us off with telling us um, how you spend your days and where you spend your days and your proudest ac- uh, professional achievement? I, you know, I've been in this
1: field for over 40 years. So, uh, you know, when I started off, for 23 years teaching in a school for students with dyslexia and was part of a team that helped grow that school. So watching that school grow was, you know, that was a really proud moment. Watching my students, I I often, when I was teaching, worked with the older students um, and even as an administrator focused on, on our high school and watching these students who had dyslexia, many of whom were told they would never be able to graduate high school Watching them walk down and receive their diplomas, that, I mean, that was an amazingly proud moment. Um, uh, you know, over the last 15 years, I've start, I have started a company called Keys to Literacy, and I'm, I'm very proud of all the people who work there, all the teacher trainers who go all over teaching teachers about how to teach reading and writing. I am so proud of them. Um, yeah, so those are some of my proudest moments. Uh, how do I spend my days uh, right now? Well, you know, running a business requires a lot of, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, which some of that's not so much fun. Uh, but I make sure that I also am able to still get out there and be out in schools. Um, you know, right right now, I tend to do more consulting with state departments of education or or depart or or you know district school districts that sort of thing. I also You know, I've been doing a lot of keynotes and workshops at conferences. So, but I guess the big overarching theme is my days are filled with literacy and how you help kids read and write.
0: (laughs) And that seems like a really meaningful way to spend your days in Florida and Massachusetts. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Can you briefly start us off with telling us a story um, that has really influenced your practice to this day? Yeah, sure. Actually, I'm going to share a story
1: with you that pretty much influenced why I even got into this field. So um, when I was an undergraduate, I was planning on being a social worker. and uh, But my very first job, my first summer after graduating, I got a job at this landmark school tutoring. And, and um, I had one of my first students was this 14-year-old girl who uh, was dyslexic um, and was reading at about a third or fourth grade level. And um, after being trained on how to explicitly teach, beginning reading, um, I watched this young woman grow her skills. By the end of the summer, she was at at about, she could read at about a sixth, close to seventh grade level which was is phenomenal but also really important right because you know to be able to do things like read the paper and read ballot questions at the booth, you know when you're voting, you know like you, you she needed that. Um, and, you know, to watch this, this, this student bloom and blossom because she was able to finally read. and. Prior to that, I knew nothing about dyslexia. And I just assumed that, you know, all students would learn to read and write. And it was really eye-opening. And at the end of the summer, um, the school said to me, you did a great job as a tutor. And I said, I really love this work. And they said, well, why don't you come on full-time? Which I did. And at the end of that year, I was sold and and this is my career. Um, You know, I eventually had to go on to graduate school to get a degree in reading, but but
0: that's the story that launched my career. It's uh, we're always indebted to those students who have launched us, um, who have influenced yes. us, or have like helped us see in a different way. And so, every one of us has one of those, and they stay with yeah. us. Every book has a seed. What was the seed of this book?
1: You know, the seed for this was planted quite a while ago. Um, I would say the beginnings of it were way back when I was teaching at that school, right? Um, and over time, I've come to realize that uh, while, while there's still much work to be done in helping teachers understand how to teach reading, writing is is has fallen behind. There's not as much research devoted to it. There's not as much time during the school day. Um, and uh, what I realized is that uh, over time, teachers started to understand the components of reading. Right, you know. So if you were to say, "What are the five components of reading?" Those were identified in the National Reading Panel 20 years ago. Right. Most most teachers now can say phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, <laughs> comprehension. Right. But when you say, "What what's what are the components of writing instruction?" It's just this sort of monolithic thing. Oh well, writing. You teach writing. Um, and it means different things to different people. So I've long felt that um, we need something, a model, a framework to help unpack for teachers, w- what are the different components of writing instruction? And so thats thats that was really the seed, realizing that um, teachers needed something very basic like that. Um, and that's, I- I've thought about it for a long time. I actually wrote several other books over the last 12 years through Keys to Literacy, I, I have a Keys to Early Writing, a Keys to Content Writing. They were, you know, much more based on, um, you know, practical, how do you teach writing across different grade levels? But uh, the, the concept of the writing rope was, what's this more overarching framework to, to put all that in? So that that's what generated the idea for the book.
0: Yeah, well, we're, listeners are very familiar with Scarborough's Reading Rope, and when I saw your Writing Rope from Edwep, I was like, "Yes, this is what we're looking for." And so I'm excited to uh, talk more about that later in a few questions ahead. Let's talk about first your subtitle. You're talking about writing across the curriculum. Why is that so? Why is that so important? And what are the three types of content-based writing tasks asked of students? Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um,
1: I, I was recently asked well, what's the difference between learning to write and writing to learn, and and I think that question is built on uh, that. That phrasing comes from the wonderful late great Jean Shaw, who posed the question: learning to read up until about fourth grade, and then after that we read to learn. Um, and by the way, I had the honor of having Dr. Shaw be my advisor at Harvard when I was getting my master's. Um, but but I think the same as it is with reading, you know, in the earliest years, yes, we're learning the skills to be able to write. We have to keep on learning those skills, but there is this sort of point where once enough of those skills are built up, whether it's transcription skills, you know, spelling, handwriting, or more composing, critical thinking, uh, sentence, paragraph writing, once we, once kids have enough of those under their belt and they're fairly fluent with them, they can turn their focus on using writing to express their ideas, right, but also use writing to learn, to reinforce. So if they're writing about what they're learning, it could be writing from texts or other sources. It could just be writing about what they're being taught in science or history. Um, that's where the writing to learn comes in. Um you know, one of the other things that I, I try when I have a chance to talk about the writing rope, one of the big ideas is that often people assume it's the purview of the English teacher or the ELA teacher to, to teach writing. Um, but really, any teacher can and should be, be teaching writing. Uh, first of all, there's there's so much work that has to be done. So many students are that far behind that that... If just the English teacher did it, there was there wouldn't be enough instruction. But a lot of the aspects of writing and using writing to learn um, are actually best taught in a subject area where the teacher is having t- students learn how you write about math, how do you write about science, uh, in order to help help your learning. So um, I think that that's the big big answer to why do i emphasize writing across the curriculum
0: let's go through a few strategies
1: yeah yeah you you also asked you also asked me about the three types of content writing that which is in in the book um yeah so let me just briefly when you think about writing in any subject area and very, very often subject Matter teachers get nervous about using writing or teaching writing because they feel like, oh, I'm going to spend my weekends redlining students' papers, right? Um, and what we have to remember is that there's all kinds of writing that, that can be done. Uh, so what I do is break it down into three types of writing. The first I call quick writes. These take five, 10 minutes. They're n- hardly ever graded. Uh, you're not looking for kids to eat. they don't even have to use complete sentences, don't worry about spelling, right? There there are things that we can do to, in the moment, have kids do a quick reflection. And what that does is solidify whatever it is they're thinking at that, that moment. Um, so quick writes. And you know, think about it this way, if you were in middle school or high school and you had five different main teachers every day, if every teacher gave you a quick write twice a week, you would be writing 10 times a week so it can be a very powerful kind of writing the second i call general content learning tasks right so this these are things like note taking when you're reading or writing a summary of something or um you know the teacher poses a question and you write out an an answer to that question they're 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 done within a, one sitting maybe two Sittings, or maybe you finish it for homework. They, they don't take that long. They might be graded, but they're really they're they're somewhat informal and um they're they're really meant to help you process and learn. The third kind uh I call more formal assignments. And these are your things like your research paper, right? Or your um Maybe you're doing a literary analysis, or maybe you're writing multiple journal entries in reaction to a character in a story. So these are things that take, you know, multiple days and they take time and they're they they tend to be more seriously graded as well. The uh the other thing I would probably tuck in under that third one is let's say you're doing practice for the kinds of writing tasks you're given on a high-stakes state assessment, where students are given a prompt and they're given multiple sources and they have to find information and that's what I mean by formal writing. We don't do those as often. We do the quick writes all the time. If you can do at least once a week, one in the middle, the content, that's great. And then the formal ones are
0: less often, but they're spread out over time. I was going to ask you, give us some strategies and you basically did by talking about the three types of content-based writing. Like anyone so studies teacher or let's say a music teacher or art teacher uh, just shared a piece of content and what they're going to have them do is quick write and stop and just yeah, say like yeah. what do you notice about this piece of art and that's a very quick yeah. write. boom getting their ideas out it's just so very helpful there's quick yeah. writes uh general content-based writing like summarizing note-taking and then formal writing as i yeah. work with in my role i work with content teachers, science teachers, also teacher teachers. Even though we write in the same language, English, the way that the science lab report is structured, the way that an art critique is structured, the way that a music um, theory papers is, is structured, are so different that it, it requires content-based teachers to teach the content, how to write like a musician, yeah. how to write like, a, like an artist. So it's not about teaching grammar, which content teachers are afraid of, but it's more about how do you communicate like the person, like the people who are expert in your field?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes that's referred to as disciplinary writing. Um, and and who better to do that than the science teacher, right? Um, now, what, and this will come up again, I'm sure in our conversation, but I think the, the key and one of the things that content teachers often don't realize is whatever that instruction is going to be, you have to be very explicit and systematic in it. You can't make an assumption that students are going to figure that out, right? Um, so that's the one thing that that content
0: teachers need, maybe a little prodding to to explicitly teach these things. I still remember in college, my professor, I submitted a paper, my professor just like circled this one line I've, I wrote, it was about centimeritary, centimer, uh, centimeritary <clears> rocks. And I said, oh, they w- blank was sandwiched between this other rock. And he circled it and he said, come to my office, I need to talk to you. It's like, that kind of writing is beautiful for a, for a, like a literary creative class, yeah. but not for a scientific writing. I'm like, no one has ever taught me that. And so right. we have that's why we have to be explicit. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Yeah, um, let's move to chapter two, which is about um, your the science-based principles, the seven writing principles from research uh, that comprises effective writing instruction. Can you talk about those? Yeah, um, you know,
1: but uh, you mentioned research, so I'm gonna I'm gonna also introduce this by saying, while it's true there's not as much research on effective writing instruction as there is. It for reading, there still is quite quite a base. Um, and I'm going to just list off a couple of uh, reports. They're called meta-analyses of the research reports, so that if your listeners are, are interested in learning a little bit more about that, they can. One of the first ones that came out was called Writing Next. And these things, you could just do an internet search and get these reports free. Um, so Writing Next. And that looked at all the research um, available At the time it came out, I think in the somewhere slightly before 2010 um, that had been done about what are the most effective things we can do to improve the writing of students beyond grade three. And they identified 11 different things. Another one, it was called writing to read. And that looked at all the research about how does writing support reading? And the findings were that it supports it in an amazing way. It can support foundational skills. So some of the spelling work we do uh, supports decoding, but more importantly, writing about text and what you're reading really improves reading comprehension. And then there's two other reports. These are more recent. They came out by the Institute of Education Sciences. There's one for elementary grades and one for secondary. And this also looked at all the research up till that point, about what are the most effective things we can do. And then they turn them into recommendations that are very practically based. So uh, so the first was that gradual release of responsibility. And this was first um, proposed by Goff and, and um, no, 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 by Gallagher and Pearson in the, ni- I think it's 1989. And uh, again, a lot of people see this as I, we, you. Um, me I meaning I am the teacher, I'm going to introduce a new skill or strategy or technique, right? Maybe it's how you use a transition word or how do you write an introduction to an opinion piece or, you know, lots of things. How do you write a good sentence? And it's the hallmark of gradual release and it is that we make sure we're explicit in how we explain the skill. We model it, we use think aloud. Then we're gonna move to the we stage. We meaning we are all going to practice this and it's gotta be guided practice. And if you can afford opportunities for students to practice with their peers, that's helpful. Ultimately leading to the you do it where the student is independent. So so that's the first one. And that actually is a hallmark of the second one which is explicit and systematic instruction. And in this case, um, the importance of explicitly teaching Any of the skills or strategies that are needed along every stage of the writing process. So um, strategies that are needed at the thinking stage where we think about what we're going to write and we gather information. Um, That could be, for example, explicitly teaching kids how to take notes, Um, explicitly teaching strategies for planning before you write. So maybe how you use a certain graphic organizer. And then actual writing, how do we explicitly teach good crafting of sentences and paragraph, and then of course, strategies for revision. Um, So that was the second one, explicit instruction. The third is differentiating our instruction to meet the individual needs of students. Because in that I, we, you sequence, the amount of time and practice and support that a student needs to get to that independent stage will vary. Um, And it'll vary on, well, you know, in the case of students learning English as a second language, you know, how much of that have they developed for students who have dyslexia or dysgraphia, you know, that might play a role. Uh, There are a lot of young students who enter school that were not exposed to oral language, even though English was their first language. That can play a role. So there's a lot of things that, that can factor in, and, and that's why we have to make sure we differentiate. The fourth is scaffolding, which is very much connected to differentiating. So we need to provide scaffolds as students are learning these new skills. Um, you know, an example of a scaffold that anybody benefits from, whether they're a a a high flying writer or struggling, right? Is a graphic organizer, we, we know that helps everybody. So that's a really simple example. Um, but writing templates, uh, if students are gonna write, learn in their younger and they're learning to write paragraphs, give them a template that walks them through how to write a descriptive paragraph or a cause and effect paragraph. Um, there are a lot of those kinds of scaffolds and writing templates in, um, in the, in the uh, writing rope book and my other books as well um opportunities for collaboration especially with peers you know when you think about it writing is is a social activity meaning we we should be using it to communicate and too too often students think that they, they get the message that my only purpose for writing is to finish this assignment and the only person who's going to read it is the teacher and it's for a grade right and and we want them to understand that you, to grow as productive citizens and and have the skills we need often in our work, right? That um and, and just to use it as a way to communicate with our family and our friends. And so knowing that this is it, it's it's a communication tool and it's all about needing others. And one of the things that that research has found is that when students do have an opportunity to collaborate with their peers and with their teachers, and this could be at every stage of the writing process. So when they have a chance to work with a partner to brainstorm what they're going to write about, or to figure out how they're going to plan it and structure it, or as they're writing to to bounce ideas off of the the peers. And then, of course, some collaboration on revision. So that that was the, the fifth Um, the sixth is using mentor texts as models for writing. Um, you know, we all learn by emulating how we see uh, that others have, have written, um, you know, if I'm, I sometimes use this example, I, I, I was in an, a car accident, it wasn't a bad one, but you know, I needed to write a police report, accident report, and I did, I'd never written one. So the first thing I did is I said, can I see a few of the other, you know, how other people write these things? And I read a few of them and I thought, okay, now I know how to do this, you know, or think about you're a teacher and you have to write a grant, for a project and you've never written one, right? So what do you do? You look at how other grants are written. So that that's really the, the idea behind this, right? So how does that translate into the classroom? Any skill or strategy or technique that you're trying to teach kids, part of that I do it phase is to show students examples of how others have done that. Now that could be um, published author text so if I'm showing students, let's say how to, uh, I don't know, write a paragraph, a descriptive paragraph, I might find some really juicy examples of descriptive paragraphs in some of the, the books that we're reading. Um, but it could also be other students' work. I mean, we would obviously hi- cover uh, cover their names, but maybe a really well-written st- par- a student's paragraph, um, you would show that. Uh, but but this idea of, of emulating and seeing how others do something. That's really behind uh, teaching strategy number six. The last one is kind of broad, and it's basically reminding us that we need to increase the amount that students write in all subjects. Because while practice alone, we need instruction, isn't enough. If you don't practice, you're not gonna build that fluency. It's like riding a bike. If you don't practice enough, you
0: don't get really good at it. So that's the seventh That's the seventh teaching principle. I have a question about the template. What happens if teachers push back and say, well, this is so prescriptive, like there's no creativity behind the template and you're just having students fill in blanks?
1: Well, first of all, with a template, you're not having them just fill in blanks. So let me give you an example of a template. Um, and I'll use this, let's say it's for third graders who are just learning to write good paragraphs. Um, We teach them that you should have have a topic sentence that states your main idea. Uh, We teach them that they need to have supporting sentences. We teach them that certain transition words are helpful to connect the sentences. So a sample writing template might have space at the top. It might, number one, just say topic sentence and have a couple of lines to remind the student, right? um so so you're not writing it for the student you're just reminding them that they need to do do that you might also instead of just saying topic sentence knowing what the topic is about you might give us a sentence starter right um so if the students i don't know say they're writing about electricity um you know you might say something like electricity is and then they complete the topic sentence right Um, Then you have space for the supporting sentences and you could use sentence starters with a transition. Um, If it's an explanation, you might say one thing about and then have the next line down another. Um, So you're just sort of cueing them and you're giving them space and you're reminding them about the different elements of of a paragraph. Um, The same can happen with longer pieces of writing like, let's say you're asking them to write a letter to someone to share their opinion or or give a call to action. The top part dear would be there, right? You'd have a spot for the paragraph and a reminder that they need to state their position here. And you might give them a starter for that. My position on this topic is, and then you have space for for the other paragraphs that are gonna provide reasons. Now that that's a kind of brief example. Um, I don't think that's cheating. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, it's interesting. You bring that up what teachers might say though, because sometimes I've had teachers when we're out there doing training, say, um, you know, showing them a mentor model of how somebody else wrote this that's cheating. They're just going to copy. Well, not really, you know, because they're just going to be writing about a different topic. What they're, what they're emulating is, the structure and and the style, and that's what allows them to develop proficiency in those things.
0: I appreciated that you just pulled back and explained um, what a template is. And when I heard that you were talking about the prompts, the prompts help students see <clears throat> structure the ideas, and sequence ideas, so that it sounds like the fo- so that the format isn't something that that gets in the way of the communication, and that's what the template does. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. And then- you know let
1: me build, let me build on that for a second also because you're making me think of something else that sometimes teachers say, right? Um, well, how will the kids ever you by teaching text structure and these elements, it's very rigid, right? You know how are the students going to be able to be creative with their writing? Um, and this isn't saying that that there isn't room for being creative, right? Or to take artistic license, but you need the fundamentals and to be able to do those readily before you can then spin off. And it's it's a little similar to art. Um, I I do watercolors. I'm not very good at it, right? And um and I I studied art history in undergraduate, and what I learned was like the greats, the great the great painters. Um, you know, if you look at Picasso's work, I mean, think about how creative that it is. But they all had to learn the foundations. They had to learn about mixing colors. They had to learn about perspective. Um, when you look at the work of somebody like like Picasso, when he was young, he was doing. He could do paintings that looked very realistic. So it's you almost need to have that structure and those basics down before you can then then build on it and get creative.
0: That was a great example of Picasso saying like. You have to get the fundamentals first and then build with those skills, you can be creative. And so you're giving us that structure there. Let's move, let's circle back to um, this Scarborough's Reading Rope to talk about your writing rope. What are the features of the writing rope? Oh, yes. So um, the, the first strand
1: of the rope is critical thinking. And there's a few things I tucked in under that. But broadly, the idea of this strand in the rope is that it covers all the skills and strategies that you need in order to, um, especially if you're writing about what you're learning, if you're writing from text. So it's brainstorming skills, um, skills like note taking, um supports that you need like graphic organizers to plan your writing it's all that like high level thinking that goes along with composing the other thing i put in there was the stages of the writing process which they've been around for a while a couple of researchers hayes and flowers in the 1960s started trying to identify what what are the stages that good writers go through you know, so that we could understand and maybe teach that to students who are learning. And it it went through different iterations, but um, to simplify it for students, uh, um, I've come up with this little acronym called the process writing routine. And the first letter of each word stands for the, the four stages. So the, the T stands for think, process, the P stands for plan, uh, writing, W for writing, and then routine. The R stands for revision. So think, plan, write, revise. Um, that's the first strand in the rope. The second is syntax or sentence, and this is how do we teach students what what a complete sentence is, even that it has two main parts. Uh, In the early years, what are the four types of sentences? You know, questions, statements, commands. Um, But more importantly, this is where we work to develop students' ability to expand their sentences, elaborate the wording in their sentences, write more complex sentences. Uh, And then, of course, beginning punctuation comes in here as well. So that's the second strand. The third um, is text structure, and this is a big one, a lot fits in under here. So we start on the biggest level, what's the broad structural differences between genres, and in particular, the three main types of writing. So opinion or argument, informational narrative. Um, And so how do we write introductions for those three types of writing? How do we write conclusions? How does the body develop how is it structured differently? In informational, it's going to be a lot of big ideas and sub ideas. In opinion argument, it's going to be reasons with evidence and maybe a counterclaim and a rebuttal. In narrative, it's going to be driven by events, right? Uh, so that that's a broad piece under text structure. The next level down is um, paragraph structure. A lot of students who even older ones who struggle, it's because they still can't write a good sentence and they still don't know what a paragraph is. And a lot of this comes down to that they have really not been taught the concept of a main idea with supporting details, which is what drives a a paragraph. So teaching them paragraph structure. Another thing on here, under here um, are, they're called patterns of organization. So description or explanation, chronology or sequence, cause and effect, problem and solution, compare and contrast. And these patterns can be taught to children when they're really young. They can write one or two sentences. They can write a paragraph, but they can also take one of these patterns and string it out across multiple paragraphs. And then also related to this are these transition or linking words that are absolutely essential. I like to I call them like little golden words because they help tie it all together. And our students who have low language skills, these are not part of the repertoire. So we have to explicitly teach them. We need to make anchor charts or posters of transition words available to them. Um, you know, there's there's a list of transition words and phrases I developed in 1978 that um oh God, like we used it all over Landmark School. Um, I would have students writing me 10 years later saying, I lost my list, can you send me another one? With the advent of the internet, um, I have been able on my website to post a copy of that transition list along with a bunch of other uh, free things like that. And I cannot tell you, thousands and thousands of people download that transition list. So, uh, you know, and they use it by by just having it there for kids, uh, and and also remember I was saying about the templates, having some of those transition words in the templates really helps. Um, so that's text structure. The uh, fourth strand in the rope is writing craft or writers' moves, and in here these are all the things that do typically are taught in a writing class. <laughs> so um, literary devices like using dialogue and. Figurative language, right? Um, using metaphors, but also just things like liter literary elements, plot, summary, characters. Um, the other piece that I put in under this strand was awareness of task, audience, and purpose. Sometimes referred to as TAP, because a lot of our students don't think about that when they're writing. And if you're going to write something really well, you're going to be thinking about your audience, and it's going to help you, it's going to force you to make changes in the word choice that you use and the style that you use and even the text structure. So this is where it's, it's a writer's craft thinking about task, audience and purpose. The last strand is transcription. And these are skills, spelling, handwriting or keyboarding. were are wor- skills we need to be very fluent in so we can transcribe on the page, the words that we're composing and for too many students who don't become fluent in spelling and and handwriting or keyboarding, they spend so much energy on that, that it takes away from their composing power. And it also limits. There are a lot of students who are afraid to to write words. They don't know how to spell. And so we wanna make sure that those very foundational skills are also addressed. And then I'll just wrap this little summary up by saying, They're all identified as individual strands, right? That we can talk about them this way. We can teach specifically the skills within them. But we want to remember that ultimately part of what we have to teach students is how to integrate them all at the same
0: time when they're actually constructing a writing piece. That's the image of on your book where it's like all these different ribbons, all these different strands are coming together into an, um, so like one big rope. And so it's helpful to, for us to see, oh, here are all the things that are integrated. I guess what you're saying is, particularly for teachers who are teaching multilingual learners, we're not teaching these in isolation. We're teaching them so that the teachers can, <clears throat> students can apply them into a text. For example, um, when you talk about there is a list for transitions, but it's not just, oh, here, I'm going to print it out for you. I'm going to embed them into the template for you so that you can internalize how to use them. There's going to be a mini lesson, but there's we're not going to have like, okay, today we're going to do, uh, it's transition time. No, we're going to say, we're going to learn transitions to help you move from what the, your compare paragraph to your uh, similarities paragraph to your differences paragraph. Right?
1: Yes, yes. And we're going to come back to them all the time. So, you know, every, transitions by the way are, can be a really important goal during revision time. Um, And so can sentence combining and sentence elaboration. So, so proficient writers in their first drafts, they start using transitions. And in their first drafts, they write elaborated sentences, but struggling writers, they need to just get it down. Now, when they go to revise, if you give them a specific task, like I want you to look and see where did you put in transitions? Oh, you don't have any, or you only have one. So now I want you to find three more places to add them. That's a revising strategy that's practicing the use of transitions, right? Or I want you to find an example you're gonna focus your revision just on your sentences. So I want you to find an example of one or two sentences that are very short and simple and and maybe repeat the beginnings of those sentences. Now I want you to combine them into a longer, more elaborated sentence. So yes, to, to pick up on what you're saying, it's not now's our mini lesson, here's a transition. It's more, how do we keep revisiting it over and over again until
0: it becomes a part, a natural part of the student's writing? So that they become independent instead of dependent upon us. And so that they see the mini lessons as, oh, I can apply this as a strategy for writing in future classes and other content.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Let's, you talked earlier about uh, sentence elaboration, which is chapter six. Can you talk to us about sentence building skills and strategies? I remember that part of your webinar and I was like, wow, you shared a sentence combining strategy. And I was like, that's so great. I tried it the next day with my students and it worked perfectly.
1: Yeah. So, you know, a little earlier when we were talking about the syntax strand and the writing rope, I... You know, I mentioned that the really basics, like what is a good sentence, you know, um, a complete sentence, four types, That that's, that's sort of really foundational. Um, with this, we're, we're talking more about how do we teach students to expand and elaborate? Um, well, here's a really simple, easy one, sentence scrambles. So, because what you're what you're trying to build in order to to do this is what's called syntactic awareness. So, syntax is the study of a, of the grammar of a language, um, and and it's not about labeling parts of speech. That doesn't help kids write better, right? It's about the the learning the parts of speech allow gives you the terminology to be talking within a sentence. Oh, you're noun, or you need an adjective. But what's more important is within the writing and then the guided practice and feedback around sentence, that's where their grammar really develops. So if if I have a, I'll start with can start with a very simple sentence, maybe five words. And I take each word and I put it on a card and I scramble them all up. And um and um, you know, let's say, let's see. the boy pulled the wagon, five five words. And I scramble them all up and I say to the students, you need to rearrange the cards into an order that is grammatically correct. Um, and they now begin to move the cards around and they they put it one way and they read it and they say, that doesn't sound right. And then then they move the card around and they go, okay, that that's the that's the person place or thing, the boy but I also have another noun, wagon, but who's doing the, bit? well, you see how it goes? And so they they rearrange and as they do it, and they could do it with a partner, they talk about why did you put this here? Why did you put that there? You know, well, the wagon pulled the boy doesn't make sense, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So sentence scrambles. Now you start simple like that and then you can build on them. You can make them longer and longer and longer. So that's one. Another one is sentence elaboration using, um, I call them the W words. Uh, So where, why, when, who, you can add an H in there, how. And so they start with a very basic kernel sentence. Um, You know, the, uh, I don't know, the boy, the boy pulled. It's it's just a real kernel. So it's like, what did the boy pull? Oh, he pulled the wagon, right? Or where, or why, or how, you know, um, what kind of wagon? It was a red wagon. So, using W words, students slowly begin to expand their sentences. If you just say, make a longer sentence, they don't know how to do it. Um, And the last one, which you mentioned, has been around forever. It has been researched, you know, in fact, When I was getting my master's, um, one of my thesis papers was sent about sentence combining. At that point, which was 1979, 80, there was a fair amount of research that showed how sentence combining could support writing. But I thought, and I was using it with some of my dyslexic students, I also thought that sentence combining could improve reading comprehension. And it, it turns out that it does. And now we have a lot of research that supports that. So sentence combining has been around a long time. Um, in the writing next report that I've mentioned, a, a lot of the the the, the work that Steven Graham and research do, researchers do in kind of explaining, uh, offering recommendations for good um, writing instruction, this comes up. And so here's what how it works. You take two short, simple st- sentences So maybe the movie was good, the book was good. Can you combine them? Go ahead, you do it, combine them.
0: The movie and the book were great.
1: Yes, you could also say the book and the movie were great. I mean, there's no rules. You can also add some words, right? So that's a very simple example. And you know, for a kindergartner doing this orally that might be all that they can handle. But as you move up up into grades and kids get better at this, you then lengthen the two sentences that you're combining, or you now add a third sentence and a fourth sentence. And and eventually students build proficiency with this. And what they're doing is developing that syntactic knowledge by practicing, playing with the words. Um, So that sentence combining, those those are some of the, the easiest things that you can do. And, uh, you know, and sentence combining is something that any teacher can do. So let's say I'm a social studies teacher. If um, we're going to be, maybe we're going to be learning, I I don't know, we're going to be learning about, uh, I don't know, World War II, let's say, right? So I might have on the board as students are walking in three sentences related to what we're going to be learning that day about World War II. And I might say, as you walk into the class, as you're getting settled in, I want you to spend the first minute combining these three sentences and um, and then say, and the first people that hand them in to me, it's all going to, you know, first five that hand them in, it's going to go in a jar. And later this week, I'm going to pick a name out of the jar and, you know, you get whatever. So sense combining is something you can do anywhere. And it re- then reinforces because now the kids are writing about what they're learning.
0: Oh this is so good. Uh, can you, is there a strategy about like sentence deconstructing, you know, where in there they have like dependent clause and then you have, they have like phrasal verbs and then like all like, like the, like the most academic sentences. Kids really struggle with reading that but then is there a strategy for writing? Well so so
1: it's like it's like a yin and a yang here right you know it's just like if you decode a word you can also spell it and so that's why the sentence combining helps reading comprehension so when when it, you're dealing with reading comprehension kids encounter a sentence that's already long right and complex and in that situation they're having to deconstruct it they're having to break it into smaller parts when you're using it for writing, they're now building it back together. And so along with sentence combining, sentence deconstructing is going to help the comprehension as well as the writing, because they're just playing with the structure of
0: these sentences. I'm smiling uh, for those who listen to the podcast, because it's in the field, we know that People always say, oh, reading reinforces writing, and writing reinforces reading. And you just gave us a very clear example of how, oh, when we learn how to write this way, when we encounter long, really complex sentences, we start to realize, oh, this is, I did this with the strategy of putting sentences together. This is what the author is doing, putting really complex ideas in one really long sentence. And they start to comprehend the sentence much better.
1: And you know, that's that's one really good example of how reading and writing you know, should work be taught together. Um, there are so many others. Um, a lot of the text structure things, the transition words, for example, we were talking about them, how students use them in their writing. But when students are reading, if they're not a, aware of transitions, they're missing clues in the text to make meaning. So if we teach them transitions, it helps reading comprehension. When we teach about paragraph structure, we were talking about it for how they organize their ideas, right? But if students are not aware of paragraph structure when they're reading, they miss this really important clue. Like when, you know, when they see an indent or, or a, you know, a lot, a double line skip, it's, it's like, you know, somebody in a row. I was once in Colorado driving on these really curvy mountain roads. And I was really surprised that in addition to a sign that had like this curve, They literally had people standing with like a sign, you know, like, you know, and that image has stuck with me. And if you're, when you're reading, when there's an indent, it's like that person saying, guess what, we're going to make a curve. We're going to change the main idea that we're talking about. Students don't pick up on that. So we we could go on and on. In fact, fact, the next blog post I'm going to be writing for this month, I, I write a monthly blog post right? Take a topic like this and kind of investigate it. And that's exactly what I'm going to be writing about. How related writing and reading, how related they are.
0: Your last chapter before we go is about uh, writing at the paragraph level. Can you give us a strategy or two about how to teach that?
1: Um, Well, like I said, it's all about the main ideas, Right. They don't get that concept. So first we need to make sure they get that. And that really, in a sense, you're almost teaching them a comprehension strategy than than just writing. But um, we need to tell the structure. So we start with a good topic sentence that tells the reader what we're writing about. Now, once we get really good at writing and certainly much of what we read, authors don't necessarily do that. Very often they don't state the main idea, it's inferred. And you, it's implied rather, and you have to infer it. So you have to look at all the details and almost yourself say, what was the main idea? But again, getting back to the foundational skills, we want them to get that get this like right at the beginning. So we we have to teach them that they need to be either explicitly in a topic sentence or by providing enough information that the reader can imply, we must make clear what our main idea is. That's the first thing. And we should only have one main idea in a paragraph. When we shift, we should begin another one. We need to teach them about supporting sentences. You know, here's another thing that in the early grades, teachers often tell students that every paragraph will end with a concluding sentence, which restates the main idea. And while that's true, maybe in really basic writing, in reality much of what we read authors never give you a concluding sentence at the end of every paragraph so we need to be clear about that what are some practical strategies for teaching paragraph well one thing you can do is give a students a paragraph that's very well structured and break the sentences apart and put them on cards and move them out of order and say which of these are supporting sentences and which is the topic sentence that gets the main idea so they really have to make that connection that's a simple one you can do. Another one is put a sentence that doesn't belong. So you have a paragraph, um, maybe we're writing about snakes and uh, you know all about how snakes molt. And all of a sudden we throw a sentence in there about birds. That's an obvious example, but what it's forcing the student to do is to think about every sentence. And is this sentence about snakes? Is this sentence about snakes? And then it's like, oh, this sentence is not about snakes. So it so it gets them to focus. And then the last, the harder one is to give them a bunch of supporting sentence about a topic and see if they can come up with the topic sentence themselves.
0: When I often consult and I always share the research that I uh, get my ideas from, I know that in the future, I'm going to share your book as one of the books for writing instruction, Joan.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Let's end the podcast with my final question. You have given us so much. This is like a master class in writing instruction. (laughs) There's an activity called Traffic Light Teaching. It's three questions. Um, It's red light. What do you ask teachers uh, to stop doing in terms of writing? What do you ask teachers to yellow, uh, keep on doing um, as they teach writing? And green, what is something that they should start doing? Hmm.
1: Well, for the red, that's an easy one. They have to stop committing what I call a (laughs) sumicide. That's not a real word, but uh, a sumicide happens when teachers assume that students have underlying skills. And the older the student is, the more students tend, uh, teachers tend to do that. So we cannot assume that a 15 year old knows how to even write a good sentence, right? So we got to stop assuming um yellow um i would say if teachers are um finding opportunities for te- students to write to authentic audiences right so if they're if they're finding um writing tasks like write a letter to napoleon napoleon bonaparte's uh, constituents explaining that he were writing the letter explaining why he should continue to be emperor right versus You know, give us give a summary of Napoleon Bonaparte's, you know, his strengths and weaknesses. So if if they if they are already doing some sort of task for a real authentic audience, they should continue doing that. Um, And that spills into the green. Um, If they aren't yet, they should be doing that. As far as the green goes, um, I don't know, it could be a really long answer, but I guess I would say. Think about those seven teaching principles that we reviewed earlier in this podcast
0: and pick at least two of them and start doing them if you're not already. Thank you so much for sharing with us your your wisdom. I felt like the way that your ideas flowed out with examples, I could clearly tell that you have been working in this for so many years and you've been and it, particularly when you shared, like, "Oh, this is what teachers have said as pushback," I'm like, "Yeah, she's been doing this for a while, and she knows what she's talking about." So, you have, mm-hmm. tr- you you are like the writing whisperer. You have taken scholarly <laughs> ideas and research, and putting it into ways that we can understand. So, a debt of gratitude. Thank you so much, Joy. Well,
1: yeah, thank you. That that really makes makes me feel good. This this has been my life's work. So. And again, thank you for giving
0: me this opportunity to share with your listeners. Oh, the honor is all mine. And I know that listeners will listen to this again, and I'm sure many of them will say like, you have to listen to this podcast. So this conversation with Joan, thank you. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast. My invitation is to check out my three courses, on English Learner Portal. One is on creating the conditions for MLs to thrive, one on teacher collaboration, and one based on my co-authored book with Beth Skelton called Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals. Now, on to our recap. I have two takeaways from Joan's conversation that are interconnected. The first is that students need more opportunities to write about what they're learning. This is a call to all teachers in every content area to invite students to process about the content that they're learning through writing. The more we want them to think like the people in our discipline, the more writing opportunities we have to give students. The second takeaway is that if students are going to write more about what they're learning, Teachers in every discipline need to teach students how experts in the particular field write about content. This means teachers ranging from PE to music to math need to teach students how sentences are structured and how paragraphs flow in sequence. I hope you get to listen to this podcast one more time like I did and also purchase Joanne's book as it is one of the most practical teacher-friendly resource on making writing instruction less complicated and more practical thank you for listening be safe and be rooted in peace it's your turn to play traffic light teaching tweet at me either your red yellow or green light from this particular episode